El Fanboy, episode 30. In 2012, it was announced that George Lucas had sold Lucasfilm to Disney. With that news came the revelation that the new Lucasfilm head, Kathleen Kennedy, had planned a new trilogy, one that would continue the exploits of the Skywalker clan, bringing back Luke, Leia, and Han Solo while mixing in new characters. The first film, titled simply Star Wars Episode 7, was given a May 2015 release date. It was also announced that the film would be based on a script by Michael Arndt, the Academy Award-winning writer behind Little Miss Sunshine and Toy Story 3. It would also come to light that the film would be directed by J.J. Abrams. Things were moving along smoothly until about a year after the initial announcement. News broke that Arndt's script wasn't ready, and that Abrams himself was going to take on scripting duties. He wouldn't be alone, however, because he had enlisted Star Wars original trilogy veteran Lawrence Kasdan, who had co-written Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, and had also worked closely with George Lucas again when he wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark. Together, Abrams and Kasdan went right to work on retooling the script for Episode 7. Along with the news that Arndt's script had essentially been dumped, came the revelation that the film itself would now be delayed seven months. Instead of arriving in May of 2015, it would arrive in December of 2015. The film itself would go on to become one of the biggest, most successful films of all time, and no one cared one bit about the delays or behind-the-scenes issues with the script having to be rewritten by completely different writers than originally intended. During production for Episode 7, it came to light that Gareth Edwards would be directing Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, and that Josh Trank would be directing an untitled Star Wars story that was rumored to center on Boba Fett and other bounty hunters. As it turned out, Trank's untitled Star Wars story fell apart before Episode 7 would even make it to theaters and give fans a glimpse of what the new Lucasfilm was all about. Rumor had it that 20th Century Fox had had such a horrible time working with him on their Fantastic Four reboot that word had gotten over to Lucasfilm, probably via their common thread, producer Simon Kinberg, that he would be a liability. So Trank was ousted from the project in summer of 2015. What would become of Edwards Rogue One? The Godzilla director was riding high on the praise generated by his reboot of the legendary King of Kaiju, and there was a ton of interest in how his Star Wars standalone would turn out, especially since it was going to show the never-before-seen story of how the rebellion began, and was said to be a very different kind of Star Wars movie. Well, unfortunately for Edwards, the film would be taken out of his hands. After a pair of teasers sent fans into a frenzy with excitement, along with word that Darth Vader was going to make an epic appearance in the film, it would seem that Kathleen Kennedy and the Lucasfilm brass got a look at an early cut, and they were not happy. 
They hired Tony Gilroy to not only write new material, but to also direct extensive reshoots that would totally change the film's tone, add layers to the main characters, and overhaul the film's third act. Edwards would remain the credited director, but the film that would be released in theaters would be very different than the one he made on his own. In December of 2016, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story came out, and it would go on to be another success story. Positive reviews, sizable box office, and again, no one batted an eyelash about the reshoot drama. Meanwhile, Ryan Johnson had quietly and without issue shot and finished Star Wars Episode Eight. Aside from the fact that the film would be delayed from May 2017 to December 2017, there were no stories of discord between he and Lucasfilm. We knew that things would have to be reworked because of the untimely death of Carrie Fisher, but the delay seemed more in line with keeping up a new December tradition of Star Wars. So Johnson's Episode 8 got through its entire production cycle with little controversy. The only notable story regarding Johnson came in the form of his apparent removal from Episode 9. You see, somewhere along the way it had been reported that Johnson would write and direct Episode 8, and that he would write Episode 9 for Colin Trevorrow to direct. But then that seemingly went the way of the dodo as he would later say that it was no longer the case that he'd be writing Episode 9 for Trevorrow. Meanwhile, while Episode 8 was in post, Phil Lord and Chris Miller got to work on a Han Solo standalone film. Two weeks before that movie was set to wrap principal photography, the directing pair was fired from the film, with Ron Howard being brought on to replace them. Characters would be cut, many new scenes would be shot, and all kinds of reports would come to light about the battles between Lord, Miller, Lawrence Kasdan, and Lucasfilm in what is probably the ugliest of the behind-the-scenes drama at the new Lucasfilm. Which brings us back to Episode 9. A couple of months ago, it was announced that the film was being rewritten. While Trevorrow had been working on the script himself, Lucasfilm deemed it necessary to hire Jack Thorne to come on and polish the script Trevorrow and Derek Connolly had written together. This got people talking, because fans weren't too thrilled with the hiring of Trevorrow to begin with. Seeing as how his Jurassic World, while a successful reboot of the Jurassic Park franchise, didn't exactly show he had what it took to take Star Wars into new and exciting territory, and because his follow-up, The Book of Henry, was demolished by bad reviews. People wondered if the hiring of Jack Thorne was step one in a plan to drop Trevorrow from the project. Well, last week, the other shoe dropped. Colin Trevorrow was officially fired from Star Wars Episode Nine. An executive who spoke with Vulture on the condition of anonymity said, During the making of Jurassic World, he focused a great deal of his creative energies on asserting his opinion. But because he had been personally hired by Spielberg, nobody could say, You're fired. Once that film went through the roof and he chose to do Henry, Trevorrow was unbearable. He had an egotistical point of view, and he was always asserting that. The report would also state that he had basically become unmanageable as far as Lucasfilm was concerned. 
The quote continues, When the reviews for Book of Henry came out, there was immediately conjecture that Kathy was going to dump him because they weren't thrilled with working with him anyway. He's a difficult guy. He's really, really, really confident. Let's call it that. So where does this leave us? This morning it became official. J.J. Abrams, the man who launched this new trilogy with the massively successful The Force Awakens, would be brought back to close off the trilogy he started by directing Star Wars Episode Nine. So what exactly is going on over there? Why can't anything seem to go smoothly for Lucasfilm and their Star Wars slate? And why has the media been so gentle in terms of reporting the warts and all story of the growing pains over at the new Lucasfilm? Well, for starters, the movies have been well received. Both The Force Awakens and Rogue One garnered good reviews, good scores from fans, and made tons of money. They provide proof that no one cares about behind-the-scenes drama as long as the movies are good. But also, and this addresses the growing pains, it seems like Kennedy is doing it right. When Force Awakens was in trouble, she brought in Lawrence freaking Kasdan to work with Abrams. When Rogue One was in trouble, she brought in Tony Gilroy, and she made sure that the changes to the film weren't merely cosmetic add-ons, but rather that they were changes that rebuilt the film from the inside out so that the movie didn't feel like an incoherent mess. With Han Solo, no one can argue that a Hollywood veteran like Ron Howard, who has experience in expanding the work of George Lucas with Willow on his resume, is a bad choice. And now with Abrams back in the driver's seat for episode 9, I don't think anyone is going to worry about that production anymore. So all of her decisions have been extremely intelligent. When she calls in the cavalry to fix something, she doesn't mess around. She brings in respected, authoritative filmmakers to pick up the pieces and make something satisfying. Because let's face it, a Star Wars movie is going to make money just because it has the word Star Wars in the title. So Kennedy could totally be a jaded executive who says, oh, screw it, this thing's going to suck but it'll make cartel dollars anyway, so let's just dump this thing into theaters. But she's never gone that route. She's so fiercely invested in getting these films right that she'll spare no expense and risk all kinds of public relations headaches just to get these movies right. And for that, I tip my hat to you, Miss Kennedy. And Mr. Abrams, welcome back. And now, it's time for the week's news. All right, boys and girls, it is Tuesday. The weekend actuals are in, so we're going to start off this week's news segment, as we always do, with a look at the box office. So, folks, remember I told you last week that it was going to do absolutely insane numbers? Jesus, even I could not have predicted this. Uh, the film, which at some at one point was tracking to be maybe 60 or 70 or 80 million, and even that would have been unbelievable, ended up opening at 123.4 fucking million dollars. My 
God, people were ready to see this movie. People were ready to see any movie after being starved for the entire end of August with close to nothing good to watch. So let's talk about this a little bit. I think this does away with the idea that, you know, certain seasons are meant for certain kinds of movies and, you know, things kind of having like the, you know, their lane or their window for when they should open. I think once and for all, we're seeing that it's all just about timing in general now. It's no longer about, all right, well, this is a horror movie, so we'll open this in the fall around Halloween, and this is a blockbuster movie, so we'll open this in May or June, because now we see blockbusters that are opening in March that are doing insane numbers. You know, we're learning that basically there is no off time to release a movie, so now it's just about making sure you're releasing it at the right time, making sure that it doesn't get cannibalized by another film that is similar to it, Make sure that it has a fair distance from another big movie that could be opening around that time. And that's more so it, you know, and, and I, I remember, you know, there was a time when there was, you know, there was a, there were like clear seasons, you know, January through the rest of, of, of um, winter and even early spring was kind of like the dead zone. That's when film, that's when studios would release the movies that weren't really good enough to release during peak times, films that probably they could have uh, done like straight to DVD or straight to Netflix these days, but they were like, you know what, we've invested so much money, let's just dump this thing into theaters in January, February, and see what happens. You know, then the summer would come in May, and that's when you'd start seeing the big summer blockbusters, the action-adventure movies with a lot of special effects and, and rock'em, sock'em finales. You know, that's when you'd see a lot of big family fair because now the students, you know, the kids were out of school and and the families could all go to the movies as much as they wanted. And in general, summer was kind of like, you know, this is when the big, colorful blockbusters come out. Then in the fall, the kids go back to school and that's when all the Oscar bait would come out. That's when all the high-minded, grown-up Academy Award type movies come out. You know, the adult thrillers and all that sort of stuff. You know, and in October, you'd also get your nice little, you know, slate of horror films to sort of, you know, coincide with the fact that Halloween was coming. Then, you know, in December, you'd get like the holiday, the really family fair, you know, late November through December. Once again, family fair, holiday oriented, you know, let, let, let's all be cheerful and, and, and have movies that are sort of, you know, moral plays on, on, on just the virtues of being good people to one another, you know, and that, that's kind of the sort of general, gentle family fare. But, you know, in the last few years, all kinds of movies have been rattling the cages of all that sort of stuff. You know, in January, there was that movie with, uh, you know, Ride Along, with uh, with Kevin Hart and Ice Cube, which totally got people thinking, whoa, look at the money that that movie made in January. That's a big deal. Now we can release big, crazy comedies in January. You know, and there was even a few years back when Cloverfield did really well in either January or February. And people started saying, you know what, it's okay to release an event film in uh, during those dead winter months. 
Then you got freaking, uh, in, in, you know, <laughs> Mission Impossible. They released Ghost Protocol in December. And, that, and that, you know, that's the kind of movie that would traditionally be looked upon as a summer blockbuster. And it killed in December. It did so well that J.J. Abrams learned that lesson and brought it with him to Star Wars. And look at all these Star Wars movies are coming out in December now. I'm not saying it's the, you know, a direct correlation, but it definitely opened up the windows for that. And now we're just seeing more and more that movies are opening at quote-unquote non-traditional times and doing amazingly. Um, I'm going to sort of miss it if that day really fully comes to fruition because I kind of like the idea of the seasons. I kind of knowing, I kind of enjoy knowing that I'm going to get all my like high-minded adult thrillers in the fall, you know, and I'm going to get my big crazy dumb action extravaganzas in the summer. But you know, I guess. You know, as long as they're good movies, I'm not going to complain. And it, you know, I haven't seen it yet, so I can't comment on the film itself. But the reviews are stellar. The uh, The cinema score is okay. It's got a B plus. You know, anything in the Bs is not incredible. But you know what it is? A B plus for a horror movie is very notable. So people seem to be sparking to it quite a bit. And it's definitely high on my to-do list. Hopefully... This week, me and the wife can finally make it to a theater, make those stars align, get someone to watch the kids so I can go see it because I just can't freaking wait. I mean, I've been excited about this movie since when it was a Carrie Joji Fukunaga movie like three years ago. So I mean, my hype for this was going to be high no matter what. Now the fact that it's some sort of record-breaking R-rated horror movie phenomenon just sort of adds to the hype, but I was already like totally ready for this. But let's finish up the top five. So it opened at 123.4. Then there was Home Again, which came in at second with 8.5 mil. In third place, The Hitman's Bodyguard was finally dethroned. You know, it had spent a few weeks in first. Now it dropped to third with 4.8 mil, which is again not bad. It's a $30 million budgeted movie. And it's already made $64.8 million domestically alone. Then there's Annabelle Creation, which made another $4 million in fourth place. Wind River in fifth place with $3.1 million. And that's another sort of low-budget flick that only cost $11 million and has made $25 million domestically already. So good for them. Other notables in the bottom 10 there is you got Spider-Man Homecoming, which is in seventh place, just this, you know, the same place it was last week, with another $2 million adding to its domestic haul, which now stands at $327.7 bucks. Um, and that's really kind of it. You know, if, if you want to jump down to 14th, by the way, for those curious, Wonder Woman is still hanging in there. It's only playing in 961 theaters nationwide, and it's at six hundred. It made six hundred and sixty thousand bucks. It's not even in the millions anymore. But you know what? It's at four hundred and ten point five million bucks domestically. So Wonder Woman is still uh, a marvel. <laughs> Giggity. Uh, and speaking of Marvel and box office, you like that fucking segue, motherfucker? Uh, <laughs> there is a long range prediction for Thor Ragnarok. Right now, there's a long-range prediction, according to BoxOffice.com, that it could make $100 million in its opening weekend, um, you know, which would be a, an improvement over the previous 
Thor films. You know, the uh, the first one opened to in mid '60s. Uh, the other one opened to mid '80s, so this would be like a step up. Although honestly, that's a pretty low number, uh, and I'm not saying it in terms of um, you know shame on Marvel. How could this movie not be opening bigger? No, it's more so. It's a low number in terms of I just don't buy that projection. Just like when they were saying that Wonder Woman was going to open to sixty-five million, I'm like, oh fuck you! No, it's not. <laughs> uh, sixty-five million for Wonder Woman was never realistic, and I don't think a hundred million for Thor Ragnarok is realistic because this is not this is not your usual Thor movie. All right, you know th- this is a bigger broader story that has much more going for it than the other two Thor films. You know, and as soon as the reviews start to drop and all that sort of stuff, assuming that they're good, you know, and people see it's Thor, it's Hulk, you got Jeff Goldblum in there and Kate Blanchett looks like a badass villain. This thing is going to open to much more than a hundred million. I think it's actually going to open somewhere close to what Spider-Man Homecoming opened, which is big. That's notable. Because Thor is no Spider-Man in terms of mainstream audiences, but I really think Thor Ragnarok is going to do something in like the 120s or 130s when all is said and done. Um, And by the way, have I mentioned that it's directed by Taika Waititi? Yes, Thor Ragnarok is a Taika Waititi film because Taika Waititi is directing it. But um, yeah, and I can't wait for that. I can't wait for that. 100 million sounds low, so I'm not going to put any stock in that prediction very with all due respect to uh, boxoffice.com uh, it's just it's not going to be a hundred mil but all right so listen full disclosure I'm pretty fucking pissed off right now um, I had Kelvin all lined up to join me on today's show and t- uh, technical issues that you would not believe have hindered that I've actually I've just spent the last hour calling him over and over again and starting a conversation only to have the software that I use to record him crap out on me repeatedly. See, this is why I hate um, updating softwares. I, I hate it because I think that's what happened here. I updated my, uh, my laptop uh, to, the, to the latest iOS and the latest everything, and now there seems to be some sort of compatibility issue. So what was once going to be a cool addition of the show with, with Kelvin involved is no longer happening. But he did send along two little pieces of bochincha just for you guys to, to know about. And you got you to gotta stay tuned to the Splash Report in order to see what comes of it. But Kelvin has not one but two scoops coming up. He's working on something about the you know casting with regard to Luke Cage on Netflix. He's got some reliable intel on someone who will be joining that series. And he's also, and this is the whopper, Kelvin and his digging and his little birds have done some, uh, some investigating, and it sounds like the Splash Report is going to be exclusively reporting the story details for Gambit. That's right, the Channing Tatum Gambit movie. Uh, It sounds like Kelvin's got the scoop on what it's going to be about. So keep your eye on thesplashreport.com to find out what that's going to be. I, for one, cannot wait to see what comes out of that. 
So I'm sorry, guys. I tried. I really, really did. But what you guys are going to get are another solo edition of the Yell Fanboy podcast. By the way, this is the 30th episode. So thank you for all who have followed me for this long. If we got any newcomers, welcome aboard. Um, right now, I'd like to start things off by uh, let's discuss J.J. Abrams, shall we? All right. So uh, as I mentioned in the opening, it was announced this morning that he's returning to Star Wars. Here's some things that jumped out at me about that press release, okay? Everyone is talking about the fact that Abrams is directing it, but what I find interesting here is the press release also mentions that he's writing it. Remember, this thing already had a script. It was it had a script by Colin Trevorrow and Derek Connolly. They brought on Jack Thorne to do a polish of that script, and now this press release says nothing about that zero about that old script. Now it just says that he's writing it alongside, wait for this, Chris Terrio. That name should sound extremely familiar to anyone who follows DC and the DC Extended Universe, because Mr. Terrio is that writer that Ben Affleck brought onto Batman v Superman, uh, who he had such a great experience with on Argo. Chris Terrio did the final rewrite of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. He also gets co-writing credit on Justice League. So it's interesting. I didn't know that Abrams and Terrio had any sort of relationship. But uh, yeah, there you have it. So Abrams is going to write it with Terrio. It looks like the Trevorrow Connolly Thorne script has just been thrown out. Who knows, maybe certain kernels of that will be uh, will be saved, kind of like what happened when Abrams took over scripting duties from Michael Arndt. Remember, The Force Awakens still counts Michael Arndt in the writing credits because you know, there were certain things that, that made the final cut. So who knows what's going to make it, what's not going to make it. I'm just interested in the fact that on the official StarWars.com press release, there is no longer any mention of the prior script. It looks like Abrams and Terrio uh, basically have free reign to do whatever the fuck it is they want with Star Wars. I feel like I'm cursing a little extra today. I'm sorry. Maybe it's just my inner bitterness. If you guys knew the technical issues I've been having behind the scenes here, oh my God, I've almost shattered every bit of computing hardware in my house uh, throughout the course of today. But... um. Listen, I'm very happy. I, I don't. I haven't. The news is so fresh. I haven't had a chance to see what the overall consensus is about Abrams' return to Star Wars. For me, it's very exciting. Uh, I know some people hated what he did with the Force Awakens. They felt that it was too much of a rehash and a retread. As I mentioned last week. Uh, it was less a retread than people realize. I know there was lots of things that felt familiar, but in my eyes, he set up some very new, very fresh storytelling possibilities. And, um, you know, I, I kind of want to go into that a little bit. In the past, I've alluded to the fact that I kind of want to make the case for The Force Awakens. And I'm going to do that now. Because, um, listen, you know, I get it. I get it. We start on a sand planet. I get it that we end on an exploding Death Star. I get it that there was lots of things that felt sort of, you know, like we've already been here. But I want you guys to think for a second about what Abrams had to accomplish with Episode 7. Not just from a storytelling standpoint, but from a business standpoint. And, you know, and, and 
you know, I, I can understand why some of you maybe don't have the patience to understand the business part of it because all you want is good movies. But you've got to understand, he had to not only start a new trilogy, he had to not only do the unenviable task of, you know, continuing the George, you know, the, the story that George Lucas had begun this time without George Lucas, you know, because they weren't using his story ideas. But he also had to win back audiences. Because while Star Wars has always been popular and it has never really lost its popularity, you know, it lost a great deal of goodwill because of those prequels. Uh, you know, the prequels really sort of hurt the Star Wars brand. And with Episode Seven, he had to not only, you know, continue the legacy, but he had to try to, like, remind people why they became Star Wars fans to begin with. All right? That's very important, and it can't be overlooked. He had to go and say, all right, here's a movie that's going to make, you know, new fans, but it's also going to speak to all the old fans that had become disillusioned and go, this is why we loved Star Wars to begin with. That's why a certain amount of familiarity, as far as I'm concerned, makes perfect sense. Did he push it a little too much, a little too much nostalgia? Sure. But when you think about it in the guise of that, when you think about it in terms of he had to remind people why they fell in love with this property to begin with. That's why the familiarity was very important. He wanted to bring back those warm, fuzzy Star Wars feelings after people had become very sort of jaded to Star Wars after the prequel trilogies, the prequel trilogy films, which were very sort of cold and sterile, and they kind of took things kind of in a more political way, and just in general didn't have the same sort of heart and adventure and the hero's quest as what, you know, as what made the original trilogy work so well. So I totally understood why he leaned on nostalgia for the first one. Um, and my hope now is, with him back, that now he knows he doesn't have to set the table anymore. Yes, Episode 7 had to set the table and basically serve as a launch pad and bring people, you know, old fans back, expand the fan base and get them excited for the future, hence the nostalgia. For episode nine, the audience is back. The goodwill is back. The Star Wars love is in full bloom. So now he can really just tell a unique and interesting story without having to worry about that subplot, you know, the subtext of please give us another shot. You know, I don't think that can be discounted. And I think that gives us a lot of reasons to be excited. I'm very intrigued by the Chris Terrio angle. Um, that's just, I, I did not see that coming. I just did not see that coming, but, um, all right. So I, th I think that's enough on the whole Abrams thing. There's also some interesting news over on the DC end of things. Uh, according to, you know, Arrow showrunner, Mark Guggenheim, um, it looks like he like let the cat out of the bag that Joe Manganiello is out as Deathstroke for Matt Reeves, the Batman. Just a little background for those of you who perhaps aren't 100% familiar with this. Uh, Joe Manganiello had been hired to play Deathstroke. They even filmed a little teaser video that lasted like 15 seconds, you know, of him walking towards the camera in his Deathstroke costume. And it looked pretty badass. 
And the whole thing was that Deathstroke was going to be one of the main villains, if not the main villain, in what was going to be, at the time, Ben Affleck's solo Batman movie. Well, as you guys know, a lot has changed since then. Ben Affleck is no longer directing it. He's no longer writing it. They brought in Matt Reeves, and Matt Reeves was given basically a blank check and free reign to make this Batman movie however it is he sees fit meaning he was no longer tethered to the to the script that Affleck and Terrio and Jeff Johns had been working on. So, you know, ever since that happened, people were wondering, you know, is Manganiello's Deathstroke going to survive the cut? What's going to happen there? Um, and yeah, and Manganiello has been a little coy on it, you know, basically saying that like that that's that decision is out of his hands and that decision will become official whenever it is that the people of High decide to make it official. Uh, so Mark Guggenheim's comments here that have people talking is, uh, you know, when they were asking, you know, why hasn't Deathstroke been seen on Arrow in a while? Will Manu Bennett's, uh, Deathstroke return? And he said, it was a function of, you know, DC controls these characters. We went through a period where DC was like, we've got plans for Deathstroke that don't include Arrow. That changed at the end of this year, Guggenheim explained. So the big implication there is those plans that DC had for Deathstroke that was going to make them not want to have Deathstroke on the TV show, looks like those have gone away. So this seems to, you know, kind of finally clarify that Manganiello will not be returning as Deathstroke. It's kind of a shame, you know, I like Manganiello. I've been a fan of his ever since True Blood. I liked his Alcide, the, the, the werewolf character. And in general, I think he's good. You know, I, I think he's a he's a decent and, he, and a charismatic guy. Um, and I know he was taking this very seriously. He was training martial arts and sword play. And he was posting stuff all over social media earlier this year. And it's just a shame. But it looks like he's gone. And now the big question is, who will be the villain? And here's where I want to enter into uh, you know, into the public conversation here who I think they're going to be using. I think we're going to get a Penguin villain. Uh, the reason being, remember a few months ago, and people kind of forget about this, or people made light of it, or no one wanted to take it all that seriously, but I told you that Josh Gad was doing an awful lot of, you know, creating a lot of noise on Twitter about the Penguin and posting images of the Penguin and dropping hints that he'd like to play him. And then there was that interesting shot of him at DC headquarters, standing alongside Jeff Johns, and I believe it was John Berg as well, holding up a Penguin you know, comic, and the implication was he's going to be working with DC as the Penguin. And now when you combine that with what, with what Matt Reeves had says, has said, that the Batman's going to be more of a detective story... It's going to be more like a noir-driven detective story. That makes that that calls to mind the idea of a villain that does not have to physically go toe to toe with the Dark Knight. You know, a villain who can hurt him in different ways. A villain that he's going to have to use his brains and his detective know-how, not his brawn, but his brains to defeat. And Penguin's always been that kind of villain. He's not the type of villain who Batman, you know, he solves the problem by beating the shit out of him. He solved the problem in, you know, more detective-driven ways. So just, you know, 
bear with me, but this is my bit of speculation. We are going to find out at some point that there's going to be, pardon that noise, that there is going to be a new villain for the Batman. It's not Deathstroke. It's going to be the Penguin. So that's just my bit of speculation. You guys can let me know what you think of that. But that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And while we're talking DC, you know, Army Hammer continues this sort of game of cat and mouse of, of you know, saying that he's not involved with DC. He was recently asked about it for like the 39th time, and he said, no, no one's called me, no one's called me, no, nothing. Um, listen, I think, I strongly believe that Army Hammer is indeed going to be in the DCEU in some form. The amount of rumor mongering, the amount of little teases that he had with the dearly departed now Joe Manganiello earlier this year. Um, I think he's definitely going to be involved. You got Dwayne Johnson mentioning him for Shazam. You have, oh yeah, just th- th- there's no way that there hasn't been conversations. And this whole thing about actors playing coy, about playing certain, you know, uh, comic book characters, you know, this is an old story. You know, even Jason Momoa did it for a very long time, denying, denying, denying that he was going to play Aquaman. And then look what happened. You know, he's playing Aquaman. Even Paul Rudd did it for Ant-Man. The whole thing is these people don't want to reveal anything until it is officially time to reveal it. Because they can blow it. They can blow the deal. They can break a non-disclosure agreement. You know, they can start the whole process on the wrong foot if they reveal things before they're meant to be revealed. So I would not put much stock in this latest, uh, you know, decline, this latest debunking by Army Hammer that he's involved with the DCEU. I think he absolutely is. It's just a matter of... You know, who is he playing? When are they going to debut him? What is the story here? Um, and if you want to get into it also, you know, Joe, uh, Joe Manganiello and him were posting stuff together. Manganiello's out. So you, it makes you wonder if maybe, you know, whatever they did have lined up for Hammer a few months ago, maybe that's out too. You know, for all we know, maybe he was going to make an appearance in Justice League and Wheaton cut whatever that scene is. Or maybe he was supposed to be in the Batman movie, but now Reeves is not going to require him for whatever. You know, we don't know what's going to ultimately happen, but my point here with Hammer is he definitely at some point or another was involved with the DC Extended Universe. I have a strong feeling we're going to see him don some sort of costume sooner rather than later, and we'll just have to see when that is. Um... The Hollywood Reporter is also, you know, announcing that, you know, Patty Jenkins is official. She will return to Wonder Woman 2. And she's going to make a truckload of money. You know, the rumored amount here is something in the arena of $8 million or $7 million. Uh, So something around then, plus some money from the back end, making her, you know, the it's the she's the highest paid female director in history. So that's pretty damn exciting. Um, I still can't believe what I was hearing, uh, I don't know, like two months ago from folks close to the situation saying that Warner Brothers actually did not want to bring her back. Not because they didn't like her or they had a bad experience with her, 
but because it seemed like they just wanted to keep like a rotating chair of female directors, not just have her for every Wonder Woman movie. They wanted to try to get Catherine Bigelow for Wonder Woman 2 and then maybe get Michelle McLaren for Wonder Woman 3. You know, they didn't want it to just be that Wonder Woman is a Patty Jenkins franchise. But you know what? I'm glad that they decided to go for it. I'm glad that she got the job. She did a phenomenal job. She's also going to be getting a writing credit for this one, by the way, which is different than what happened on the first Wonder Woman. So kudos are in order to Patty Jenkins, who will be returning to Wonder Woman 2. Um, I want to just take a quick moment here to address something that I, 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 uh, I didn't want to go into it last week when I probably could have. But I want to talk a little bit about, you know, DC fans, okay? Or not even DC fans, because I'm a DC fan. I want to talk a little bit about the subset of DC fans who are so, how can I put it, passionate about Zack Snyder's version of the DC Extended Universe that they will attack and viciously go after anyone or anything that suggests that he's, you know, not the greatest person ever or the greatest director ever. Um, Because it it seems like these people are no longer even DC fans. They are Snyder fans. They are part of the cult of Snyder. Um, You know, last week I had a run-in with these people. And, you know, I got got fairly agitated. I, I made some reference to the fact that, you know, I don't even consider them really DC fans. They're more like an extremist fringe uh, a small subset of a much larger group. I said that they are the ISIS of DC fandom. Uh, and some people, you know, it's amazing. People like to take things very literally when it suits them. When they decide, you know what, I, th- I, I can use this metaphor and take it very literally, and now I can, I can stand on my high horse and play the victim. People are very quick to take things literally. And, you know, it's amazing to me. Because these people will attack anyone. Like last week, Rob Liefeld just, you know, he posted a tweet simply saying, I hear that Whedon's Justice League is is being tested right now. Something along those lines. And I read that and I instantly understood what he meant. You know, he's not saying that it is a Joss Whedon movie. Because we know he's just reshooting certain sequences and he's, you know, he's written some new stuff and he's doing a considerable amount of work. But at the end of the day, you know, this is Zack Snyder's movie. So I understood that he meant, you know, this is Whedon's cut because this is the cut that has all the new Whedon stuff in it. You know, so nothing really to see here. I saw that. I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if that's true. I start reading the replies and I see that there's this whole huge outlash against him because people, you know, they can't believe that he called it Whedon's Justice League. They think that he's trying to take credit away from Zack Snyder. They think that he's, you know, being cruel and mean to Snyder. He's saying that they're saying that Liefeld is a fraud and a hack and a loser. And all it got very bitter, very vindictive, very mean-spirited, very quickly. And it pissed me off because if you just read between the lines, he's not saying anything bad. We all get it. Earlier this year, there was a rough cut of Justice League, and that was the Snyder cut, essentially, 
They've already acknowledged as much. And the official article about him having to step away and Whedon coming on board, in, in that article, it was revealed that there was a rough cut aired earlier this year. And the reception to that rough cut and the way Snyder felt about it, that is what precipitated the changes that had to come. That's what precipitated Whedon having to be brought on to change things. So with that in mind, that is like the Snyder cut. This cut that's being worked on now, you can refer to as the Whedon cut. There's no crime in that. All right? I'm sorry. I just... It's it's unreal to me that people have to get so, like, spiteful and angry and vindictive about something that has nothing to do with them. And it really is just sort of common sense. And something that I was going to be discussing with Kelvin is the fundamental misunderstanding that people have, you know, people in that particular sect of the fandom have about this idea of unnamed sources. They like to scoff and they like to mock and they like to demean any article or any report that cites unnamed sources. But you know, If you're one of the people who says something like, well, I want to know who your source is. I'm not going to believe it until I know who your source is. Why don't you reveal your source? You know what you're really saying? If you put that through the translator, all that amounts to is, I don't know how any of this works. That's all it really means. Because journalism has always relied on unnamed sources. That's how this works. Now, let me tell you, let me, I'm going to be very specific here. I'm going to sort of pull back the curtain, okay? If you are one of the people who is fed up with unnamed sources and one of your big ways of shouting down any story that you don't like is to say that since there are no official names on the record here, that it's bullshit, here's what I want, here's what I want you to think about. Here's what I want you to digest, Okay. In the case of the extensive Justice League reshoots, Kelvin Chavez of the Splash Report has a source that works for the movie. This person is on the crew for the film. This person has also worked on other major films, films in the Marvel Universe, films in the Star Wars Universe. This person is a known, verifiable person. Now, If you work on these movies, you are required to sign a non-disclosure agreement. You are not allowed to talk about any of this stuff in public. Or you can be sued and you can be fired and your entire career could go right out the fucking window. So when someone like this comes to a reporter and just says, hey, listen, I can't go on the record, but this is a big story. You might want to share this with your fans because this is unprecedented or this is interesting or whatever. And they confide that sort of thing in their journalist friend or ally or whatever the hell you want to call it. It is now up to the journalist to fiercely protect their source's identity. And there are so many reasons to do that. A, you don't want to get that person fired. B, you don't want to get that person sued and have their entire livelihood taken away from them. And C, you want to keep them as a source. If you oust them, if you reveal their name and identity, guess what? Not only are they not going to give you any scoops anymore, but no one's going to want to give you scoops because clearly you're a rat and you are willing to bring them out of the shadows, out into the public Why would anyone ever trust you again? 
So think about that, you very interesting people out there who don't understand how journalism works, but will dedicate your entire Twitter feed to ranting and raving about everything that you don't like being fake news. Everything you don't like is clickbait. Bullshit. You, as a consumer of this news, you have one responsibility. Decide which sources you believe. Okay? So that, that, that is where the ball is now in your court. If you read a rumor or an exclusive report from some site that's never been heard of before, and you want to take that to the bank, that's up to you. Personally, I'm going to look at sites that have a track record. First, I'm going to look at the main trades, things like Variety, things like Deadline, things like The Hollywood Reporter. These sites don't need your clicks. These sites have been around a very long time, especially Variety and The Hollywood Reporter. We're talking since like the late 1930s. Okay, these are institutions, the most trusted entertainment news institutions in the world. They don't give a fuck if some DC fanboy clicks on their headline. They're just trying to share the news. So I start there. Then if there are certain fanboy blogs that report something, I think about their track records. I think about, you know, the pros and cons of trusting their rumor. You know, for me, sites like Joe Blow, I trust. Sites like The Splash Report, I trust. Um... Yeah, there are other ones too, but I'm, yeah, I'm, this is not about, uh, I don't want to put any on a pedestal. And I also don't want to belittle any other sites, but I'm just trying to share with you what I do as a, as a consumer of news. So just think about that next time you want to flip the fuck out and call something fake news or clickbait or where are your sources or I don't trust your sources or oh, quote unquote unnamed sources. You don't understand how journalism works. So wake up. Grow up and stop attacking anyone who reports anything that you don't absolutely love. Because I'm sick of this stuff. You make all of us look bad. You know, I'll see Joss Whedon post a, a tweet that has nothing to do with DC, nothing to do with Marvel, nothing to do with entertainment. He'll post a tweet that's just about a human social issue. You know, some sort of anti-Trump thing or some sort of, you know, pro-social justice type deal. You know, he'll post something that has nothing to do with anything entertainment-based. And I look at the replies to that tweet, and you get these angry DC fanboys who are going, aren't you busy reshooting Justice League? Why don't you get back to that? Are you, or, or, or are you too busy cheating on your wife? And like these weird spiteful, vindictive, nasty comments to someone who just posted something that was kind and gentle and selfless and meant to promote a social cause. But these people are so blinded by their hateful ideology that they have to go after someone. It's just, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot for someone like me to deal with, especially because, you know, when it comes to DC in particular, these characters mean so much to me. These movies mean so much to me. And I don't want the people involved in making these stories to think that those vitriolic idiots represent all of us. I think they are a small subset of the DC fandom. And I just, I hope they go away. Or I hope that something, a miracle occurs. 
and they realize that they've been wrong all along and we can maybe just coexist. Once Justice League comes out, let's turn the page. Let's hope the movie is so good. It creates a whole new wave of goodwill and loving feelings and we can all be friends again and not get into this hateful Snyder versus Whedon, you know, type of mentality. You know, all the media sucks and critics are all biased and everyone's in the Marvel pocket and all this bullshit. I thought that Wonder Woman would do that. I thought the love fest from Wonder Woman was going to maybe put some of that vitriol, some of that nastiness behind us. But uh, to a certain subset of the DC fandom, that is just not true. And it's a damn shame. Um, and while we're talking about like just angry hordes and ignorant fans, uh, there's another story going around that, you know, the Adam Wingard, who directed uh, Death Note for Netflix, he had to leave Twitter. He had to leave Twitter because the personal vitriol against him because people who didn't like the Death Note movie got so intense that he was getting death threats. People were actually sending death threats, real personal, angry, just like hatred at this guy. That now he's off Twitter. And it's like, what is up with people nowadays that you, you don't know how to just civilly disagree you know, I see it in political debates all the time. I see it happening everywhere. But seeing it happen over entertainment, over movies and TV shows, and it's just, it's really disheartening. It's really, really disheartening. And reading that story about, you know, about Adam Wingard just got me thinking about these DC people again. I just, can't we just, can't we all just get along? Can't we just civilly disagree, you know? Um... But all right, I'm going to move on from that. I just kind of wanted to put that out there, let you guys know how journalism works, that no, we can't reveal our sources because that would be fucking stupid. So stop asking for it, you mental midget. Um, now, there was a, an interesting trailer for Downsizing coming out. And I w I, the movie was not on my radar. It's by Alexander Payne. I have no real opinion on Alexander Payne. I don't, when I see his name attached to something, it doesn't help my hype. It doesn't hurt my hype. It just exists. He's a fine filmmaker. I, it means nothing to me. So when I heard about Downsizing by Alexander Payne, I'm like, eh, I, I don't know that I give a damn. But I watched the trailer because I heard some buzz on it. And holy hell, this thing looks really good. Uh, it's coming out around Christmas time. If you have not yet seen it, Go see the official trailer for Downsizing. It kind of reminds me of uh, the Spike Jonze movie, um, Her. Not in, the, not in terms of what the storytelling is, but in terms of the way it approaches the storytelling. In terms of you, t you have this sort of science fiction concept, but it's not really a sci-fi movie. You know, it uses technology. It uses science fiction to sort of, you know, hold up a mirror to modern day society and maybe have some things to say. It's more of a, you know, it's more of a metaphor. It's sort of an allegory to the times that we live in. And Downsizing seems like this interesting sort of offbeat film uh, with the central idea being in the future, people start to shrink themselves. Like literally physically go into a machine and shrink themselves forever because 
it all happens under the guise that they're able to live a better life because of it. Um, just see the trailer. You'll see what I mean. Matt Damon's in it. Kristen Wiig uh, is in it. There's lots of good actors involved. Um, and the movie's just, you know, it's it went from not being anywhere on my list to being a film I'm absolutely going watch to out, watch out for when it comes out in December. So check out Downsizing. Um, there's some interesting comments from uh, Chris Hemsworth about his experience working on Avengers uh, Infinity War, which, by the way, had to face a delay. Uh, by the way, you know, I, I, I want to send out just my thoughts and prayers to anyone listening to me in La Florida, in Cuba, in Puerto Rico, in any of the southern states. Um, you know, the Hurricane Irma came by and, and is causing some devastation. Uh, and it's actually, you know, it's continuing on up into Atlanta, uh, into Georgia. And that's why Avengers had to be put on hold. Um so I hope you guys are all doing well down there. But while we're on the subject of Avengers, so here's what Hemsworth had to say. He said, uh, the Avengers stuff is hard because it's not very personal. There's seven of you in a room and you have to get across all this information that feels expositional. So it's hard to really have a dynamic. Obviously, Tony and Cap have a lot of one-on-one screen time. Um, he went on to say, I'd always felt like I don't have that as much. And that's when you get to really have fun in terms of, you know, one-on-one time with another character. And he's referring, of course, to him and Mark Ruffalo, you know, Bruce Banner in the upcoming Thor Ragnarok. He says, as I said, we just went for it in this. And there's a nice kind of love-hate relationship there, a lovely kind of pairing. Very early on, I was saying, let's do something like Butch and Sundance and pair them up and go on a road trip. And there's elements of that in there too. So it's interesting, you know, he's not like throwing shade at the Avengers, but he is pointing out what is one of the big challenges that film makes, you know, that, that, that film has, that Joe and Anthony Russo absolutely must be mindful of. There are so many characters, so many things happening in Avengers Infinity War that finding that balance and making sure that every character gets to shine and that it's not just... I'm going to give out one line because it, here's information that the audience has. Yeah, that, that's going to be a very fine line for them to have to walk. So then, you know, I, I, I remain skeptical that they're going to be able to pull off that balancing act. I love the Russo brothers. But, you know, it, there's a lot going on in, in, in this new Avengers movie. And this quote from Hemsworth really just sort of shines a spotlight on that. It's, 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 going, to be a, it's going to be a tough ju- a juggling act. It really is. Um, then we're going to move on over back over to it. So, you know, everyone's already starting to talk about part two, what's going to happen in part two, who's going to be cast in it. And, you know, the adult versions of the losers are going to be depicted in part two. And director Andres Muschietti, uh, was asked about Jessica Chastain. Uh, and he mentioned that he would actually love to see her take on the role of grown up Beverly. In the sequel, uh, he was asked by Variety, by writer Justin Kroll, about the idea of Chastain playing Beverly. And he said, I don't know. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> he said, Jesse is an amazing actress and a very good friend, and I would love for her to play Beverly. Um, she loves the movie, and it feels like the planets are aligned in that sense. 
but we still have to make that happen. There are a lot of ideas for the rest of the cast that I'm playing with, but it's a bit too premature to say those names right now. Um, let me just say, I'd love to see Jessica Chastain play any, anyone, anything. I love that woman. Uh, I hope she gets the gig. Um, and I'm sure now that the movie's a, a smash hit, I'm sure Muschietti's going to have his pick of the litter. Whoever the hell he wants is probably going to want to be involved in this movie. So that's just something I wanted to put out there. Uh, it's an interesting story I saw going around, the idea of Chastain, who's a very, you know, respected actress, you know, nominated for Oscars and all this sort of stuff. If they can land her for it too, that's a huge get for them. Huge, huge get. And speaking of huge gets, uh, you know, following up on a story that I've been tracking here for weeks, you know, a couple of weeks ago, they announced that Ed Screen was going to be playing Major Ben da- Damio. Then there was the fo- you know, that was followed by the following week with all the backlash about the whitewashing of that Asian character. So he stepped down in what was a sort of unprecedented move. He stepped down so that the film, just you know, so that the role can be cast in a more um, appropriate manner. And now this week we have conc- you know we have a conclusion to all that. It looks like Daniel Day Kim is going to be taking on the role of Major Ben Damio. Now, you know Daniel Day Kim from Lost. You know him from the uh, Hawaii Five-O. And what's interesting about this, this is a total PR wet dream because he just left Hawaii Five-O because he felt marginalized. He felt that CBS wasn't showing the love. They weren't paying him as much as his other co-stars. And, you know, he left under this idea of that he was being discriminated against because he was an Asian actor. And how perfect is it now, if you're Lionsgate, for you to now hire Daniel Day Kim to take on this role that, you know, that, that they had been accused of whitewashing. It sort of like poetically closes that loop. It's like, a, it's like a perfect little nicely packaged story. Daniel Day Kim leaves Hawaii Five-0 because he feels marginalized and, and non-special. Ed Screen leaves um, Hellboy because he feels like this isn't right, that I took a role away from a deserving Asian actor. They hire Daniel Day Kim, and it's going to be a very high-profile thing now, you have to imagine, just because of all of the attention that it's gotten. So kudos to Mr. Kim. Kudos to the folks behind this Hellboy reboot. This is like a perfect storm, a perfect positive storm for how you can conclude this nasty story about the whitewashing and Senator Ben Damio. Um, Another bit of interesting casting, by the way, is Mike Myers, who one of his biggest cinematic moments, aside from Austin Powers, one of his biggest contributions to pop culture is him headbanging to Bohemian Rhapsody in Wayne's World. Uh, well, it looks like he gets to reunite. He gets to once again reacquaint himself with Queen because it looks like he is going to be joining Brian Singer's production of Bohemian Rhapsody, the Freddie Mercury biopic. So that's just pretty, I, I just think that's a very novel sort of interesting thing. Mike Myers, who's, you know, that, who has such a strong connection to Bohemian Rhapsody. I just played that song last week at a wedding and everyone did the crazy head banging when the guitar came in and that, you know, in the latter half of the song. Like that is an indelible part of pop culture. The Wayne's World head banging 
to Bohemian Rhapsody. And now Mike Myers gets to be in the Bohemian Rhapsody movie. That's just cool. I enjoy that. By the way, have you guys seen the uh, the official image that was released with Rami Malek as Freddie Mercury? He looks like the spitting image of Freddie Mercury. It looks it looks badass. Um, here's hoping that that movie is very good. I still, you know, I, I have a long uh, history of backing up Brian Singer. So hopefully Brian Singer brings the goods here because, uh, you know, I think that could be a very special film. Now, moving on, you know, uh, horror is having a big comeback now. You know, uh, Annabelle Creation was one of the big successes in August. Probably the only real big success in August, aside from Hitman's Bodyguard. Now, It is dominating everything. Uh, So now there's news on the new Halloween. It looks like the new Halloween, which is being co-written by Danny McBride um, and being directed by David Gordon Green is that it'll be filmed this fall, this fall. Uh, the, and, and Green also has gone on to say that uh, original Halloween director and creator John Carpenter had given his notes on the most recent script, and he digs it. Um, and he thinks that he's, he's going to try to get Carpenter to score the movie. So listen, if this happens, this is like a holy grail. You know, if you got Carpenter's blessing, if you're going to try to get Carpenter to give notes to your script, you're going to have Carpenter score the damn thing, possibly. Uh, I'm very, very, I'm excited about this. I love Halloween. For me, that is my favorite masked slasher movie. My favorite slasher movie, period, is the original Halloween. Uh, It just creeped the hell out of me. I thought it was masterful you know, uh, horror storytelling, not too in your face. It had, it had, you know, the types of scares that really sort of slowly crept up on you. Kind of like Michael Myers that he's like the Pepe Le Pew of, uh, of, of killers who he never seems to run, but he always seems to be right behind you. Uh, and I, I've dressed up as Michael Myers for Halloween, I think like five or six different times. You know, Michael Myers is part of my like cinematic DNA. He's my first, horror, you know, slasher guy. Everyone else like Jason or Freddy Krueger, they were like the sexier ones. I've always been a Michael Myers guy. So hearing that this new Halloween movie is going to, um, you know, go into production this fall has me very, very excited. And by the way, uh, you know, McBride says that this isn't a reboot per se. It just ignores the latter sequel mythology. So if that makes any sense, it's, you know, it looks like it's going to try to pick up from like maybe the first Halloween or maybe the second one because Carpenter was involved with that. So I doubt that they want to uh, disregard Carpenter's follow up, but it looks like they're going to just basically act like Halloween's four, five, six, the curse of Michael Myers, Halloween H2 Alter. They're going to act like none of those happened, which, hey. I'm fine with that. And if it means that we're going to go back to that period, that late 70s, early 80s time period, bring it motherfucking on. So anyway, I'm sorry. That's, uh, I'm just, I, I, as a horror fan, I've been, I, I've been on cloud nine lately. Um, and there was also just some news about how the, the nun movie, the, the, which is the spinoff from The Conjuring who, you know, the character that, that was glimpsed in The Conjuring 2, and they even showed her real quick in Annabelle Creation as getting her own movie. 
they were saying that you know they're going to be drawing inspiration from those great uh, 1960s Hammer horror films, the films that came from Hammer. Uh, if you guys don't know about that, look them up. They made several iconic classic horror films. So, you know, if James Wan is overseeing it and he wants this film to kind of have its own identity and not be like a conjuring ripoff, um, you know, the Hammer stuff is a very interesting way to go with it. Uh, There's also been news this week, you know, a lot of people talking about Rotten Tomatoes and the uh, averse impact it has on, uh, on, you know, on, on box office. Uh, you know, New York Times recently published a report on this. It had quotes from Brett Ratner basically grumbling about the fact that Rotten Tomatoes is killing the industry and all this sort of stuff. Well, now there's a counter to that argument. A data scientist named uh, Ives Berquist has uh, put together a case study, and here's more or less what it concluded. Uh, he says, I collected box office return data through Box Office Mojo for all of the 150 titles released in 2017 that grossed more than $1 million. Plugged in Rotten Tomatoes scores and audience scores for all titles and looked at correlation between scores and financial performance through both a basic Pearson product moment correlation coefficient, Jesus, Analysis and some linear modeling to extract R-squares. This is way over my head. Uh, PMCC measures the linear correlation between two variables, X and Y. It has a value between plus 1, which is 100% positive correlation, and negative 1, 100% negative correlation, often called inverse correlation. The closer to a 0, a PMCC score, the less correlation there is between X and Y. The result? Nope. The math is pretty overwhelming in saying there was no positive or negative correlation in 2017 between Rotten Tomato scores and box office returns. Now, see, to me, this just doesn't sound right because I do really, I think that there is a correlation, but this is more just me speaking from my gut. I'm not a data scientist, but it just feels like to me, people are being more and more intelligent about where they spend their money and where they spend their time. Um, so it would make sense that something that makes it easy for them, like Rotten Tomatoes, to just see, is this movie good or bad or worth my time, would be a tool that gets used a lot. But, uh, you know, like I said, I'm not a data scientist. Uh, and I'm sure there are other case studies that will prove the opposite. Because there's always, you know, there, you can find studies that support practically any claim you can find. Um, but I just thought that that was interesting because it was a trending story there for a while that, you know, Rotten Tomatoes is killing the industry. Well, this guy says not so fast. Um, I got a new review this week. The El Fanboy podcast continues. It's perfect five stars. And I'm going to go ahead and read this latest review. Uh, it comes from iTunes user Tiger Jackson. Uh, he calls it serene subway ride music to my ears the body of the review reads i have been a fan of mario since his latino review days so happy when i found his podcast i find myself wanting more content and faster his podcast usually accompanies me to work and sometimes when i drive keep up the good work man uh thank you thank you very much mr jackson um 
you know, that means a lot. That means a lot. Every one of these reviews, you know, it, it helps me move up the iTunes charts and the Stitcher charts. It puts me higher up on the algorithms. So anyone out there, if you can just take the time to go and shoot me just a quick review, that would be uh, very, very much appreciated. And uh, Mr. Jackson, just so you know, later on this month when I get the Patreon page finally up and running, you will get more content and you will get it at a faster clip because I'm working on some pretty exciting stuff. Um, right now I have one thing that I've had to put on indefinite hold because I'm getting more information and it's forcing me to sort of have to uh, realign it. And that's that, that thing I told you guys about a couple weeks ago, the curious case of Benjamin Affleck. Uh, so stay tuned. That, that is still on the horizon. I've just kind of had to put it on a, on a shelf for now, uh, because of some incoming Intel. I'd also right now like to take an opportunity to debunk something that gets brought up a lot lately. When people are online talking about um, all this stuff with Joss Whedon and his, you know, his reshoots and everything that he's doing on Justice League, people like to bring up that George Lucas did some work on Jurassic Park, and yet no one calls it George Lucas's Jurassic Park. And people try, you know, you will see this if you, if you actually engage folks on this topic. You will hear this weird George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Jurassic Park thing get floated around. So I was very curious about this, and I did a little research. And I ended up speaking to someone who's an authority on it. Uh, his name is Brad Jost, and he runs the Jurassic Park podcast. He knows his stuff, and I asked him what it was, you know, what, is, what do we know officially about the work that George Lucas did on the original Jurassic Park? And here's what he said. I don't believe it can compare at all to the Whedon-Snyder situation. Whedon took over the director's chair, while, as far as I know, George Lucas just oversaw the sound editing. Spielberg still held most of the duties of post-production while filming Schindler. And this is coming from not you know, just some random fan. This is an authority on the subject, saying that as far as he knows and as far as his research has found... All Lucas did was oversee some of the sound editing because Spielberg was busy, hard at work on Schindler's, and he didn't have time to fine-tune that sort of stuff. So let's just put that to rest, that this is in any way comparable to the insane amount of work that Whedon is putting into Justice League, all right? Let's just debunk that once and for all. Uh, this week's referral is going to be, I, I referenced it earlier, but it is the Spike Jonze movie, Her. If you have not seen Her, starring um, Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson, or at least the voice of Scarlett Johansson, do yourself a favor and check it out. Uh, I loved the hell out of that movie. It sort of came and went. I thought it would be a much bigger deal. I thought it was a very thoughtful, very smart, very artfully made film. Um, it actually reminded me of, of, you know, one of my all time favorites, which is, you know, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Very similar to what I was saying earlier about downsizing. There's this little sub genre of smaller, more high minded films that include these science fiction conceits to explore really human themes. And her is another one of those types of movies, you know? So if you have not yet seen her, go see her. Um, on the personal end of things, just a brief update on what I'm working on creatively. Uh, I've, I've, I've hit upon a story idea 
that I'm very, very excited about. Uh, it basically writes itself. You know how they say, you know, write what you know? To me, that's what makes this idea stand head and shoulders above a lot of the other ideas I've had. This idea, I know inside and out, and all I have to do is put my fingers on the keyboard and everything just flies out of me because it comes from my own experience. It's not like a, it's not biographical, but it comes from an area that I know a lot about and I'm basing it on certain experiences that I've definitely had. So it's a very exciting idea. I hope to give you guys something to, to look at at some point. I may post like a few pages from the screenplay at some point, just so you guys can see where I'm heading with it. But for right now, I am hard at work on uh, building out and expanding on this idea that I'm insanely excited about. And one idea I can share with you, which is something I'm not going to write, but it's something I've been speaking about to people this week, and they're all like, oh my God, I want someone to write that. And I'm never going to write it. So if anyone wants to steal this idea I'm about to share with you, go ahead and steal it because I'm never going to write it because I'm not into fan fiction and that's what this is. But um, so basically, you know, I've gotten I got my friend Greg into Dexter recently. Uh, You know, he likes to binge shows and he asked me, you know, what should my next show be? So I said, you should check out Dexter. You know, it goes all downhill after season four. But those first four seasons are some of the finest television in, you know, in recent TV times. Uh, aren't I eloquent? TV times. Uh, and in getting him to watch that show and, and, and me once again rediscovering what it is I loved about it, it got me thinking about this old piece of fan fiction that I just, I would kill to see how this would play out. But I just don't have the patience or the desire, really, to sit and write it. But if you want to humor me for a second... Imagine, if you will, that Dexter Morgan gets a new target, right? There's someone new on his radar. For those of you who watch the series, you know, he, he tends to pick these people who, who fit what he calls Harry's code. You know, the, these types of criminals who are always just under the radar, people who slip away through technicalities, people who just, for whatever reason, are so smart, they don't end up in jail. And he uses them to basically unleash his own murderous desires. Sorry about that sound again. I'm very popular today. Um, So imagine if on Dexter Morgan's radar, he hears about a meth cook named Walter White. And, you know, he doesn't know exactly what's going on with him, but he knows that people around him are mysteriously dying, that he has these drug connections and that something has to be done here because the cops can never quite nail him. So Dexter begins basically a cat and mouse with Walter White, a.k.a. Heisenberg. And Walter White, who's very, very intelligent, as we know from Breaking Bad, he picks up on the fact that he's being stalked by this Dexter Morgan guy. There'd be this whole delicious cat and mouse game between the two of them where they switch between who's the hunter and who's the prey I would just, for me, that would be so cool to watch Dexter versus Walter. Um, yeah, Dexter v. Heisenberg, Dawn of Awesome. And then I've even thought about, you could mix in a third series here. So we've already got the, 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 the merging of the Dexter mythology, the Breaking Bad mythology. But now what if, as a subplot, Walter is trying to expand 
his enterprise. He no longer, you know, he's no longer working for Gus Fring. Obviously, you have to tweak with the timelines and all this sort of stuff, right? But let's say, you know, he, he wants to expand. He's trying to be the, the drug kingpin himself now and, and keep this thing going. So he needs to hire his own smugglers. He needs to find a way to get product across the border and all this sort of stuff. So he hires the Sons of Anarchy. <laughs> Listen, it could to- tell me you can't picture that. Tell me you can't picture... Walter speaking to Jax Teller about, you know, w- how this deal is going to work. And then the misadventures of Jax Teller and the sons having to run the blue meth across the border and what comes with that. Like, to me, m- the the merging of the Dexter, the Breaking Bad, and the Sons of Anarchy worlds, it makes my fanboy head explode. So if anyone out there listening wants to, like, take that idea someplace, go for it have fun send me a link i want to see how it plays out but all right i think i've uh, taken up enough of your time for today thank you so much for sharing this uh this this time with me and until next week adios